struggle with these seeming polarities is because we can't understand perfect self-sacrificial love and vengeance that is not completely egotistical and self-centered. See, we only know these terms in fallen human terms and not within the perfections of God. See, what you find is that if God is a perfectly loving God, he has to be a just God. Is it possible for love and vengeance to coexist? People, especially in today's culture, have a hard time believing this. Yet many places in the Bible say this is true of God. So how do you reconcile God's perfect love with his vengeance? Today, Pastor Daniel explains that part of the reason you struggle with this is that you don't understand perfect love. He invites you to turn to God for answers to show you how this is possible. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Deuteronomy chapter 32 as he continues his message, Moses Song. When you are in Christ, God is not angry with you anymore. You have to know that. For the children of Israel, because Jesus had not yet come, they were responsible. And we're responsible as well. But all of God's anger against our rebellion, he took out on Jesus on the cross. We live post-cross and post-empty tomb. And it's a different reality. So even when one of God's kids rebels, God is not angry with them. But we do when we live in rebellion against God. We disable our ability to be sensitive to the blessings of God. And the presence of God. We become numb to the rhythms of his spirit. But he's not mad at you. If you're in Christ. Listen. God knows that there's not one of us. Who has had a perfect day. I'm perfect because Jesus is perfect. And he dwells in me. I've done a million things wrong already today. I'll just be honest. So it's 80 degrees outside. I thought to myself. Man if I wasn't the pastor. I'm not coming to church today. I was drinking iced tea, sitting in the backyard. And I'm like, man, that ain't right, Lord. I'm just going to call in vitamin D needed, you know? And that's what I was thinking about that. Now, I realize that's sinful. I'm confessing. You pray for me. You know, but I thought about it. I'm like, man, even one of our assistant pastors can call in Sonny. But I can't. And I started feeling a little bit frustrated about that. And then I think to myself, you know, Lord, I haven't had one perfect day. But God's not mad at me. God doesn't come and say, oh, Daniel, you're so horrible. And, you know, it's like, I know who you are. I adopted you. I'm doing a work in you. I have a plan for you. So just show up. It'll be sunny again later. But I want to make sure, because when we're reading what's going on for the children of Israel, because Jesus has come and he is real and he already died on a cross to receive the punishment for our sins. Things are different. The new covenant is a new reality in relationship. But for the children of Israel, they experienced all of this. 
Ultimately, of course, after their rejection of Jesus, the children of Israel were displaced from their land. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And so the idea is, in one sense, when you're in your father's house, walking with God, you experience these abundant blessings. But when you forsake God and you provoke God, then you experience the exact opposite. And that's why we call this series Cause and Effect, right? Because we've been seeing it all through the book of Deuteronomy, that every action has some sort of an effect. And we have to really ask ourselves in our relationships with God, with other people, and the way that we move through the world, are we living into the things of God's kingdom so that we can experience God's presence and blessing, or are we living in a different way? And that's why I always talk about the need to simply respond to Jesus. Because at every moment, Jesus invites us to be a part of who he is and what he is doing in the world. And at every moment, we make decisions on if we're going to live into that or if we're going to rebel against that. And we have to make sure that we live as we actually are and not be the kind of person that the Apostle Paul says that we look at ourselves in the mirror and we immediately forget who we are. But the children of Israel, they experienced all of that. And really, by the time we get down to verse 28 and 29 and 30, for they say, for they are a nation devoid of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless the rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered? What he's saying is that even if everything is going wrong in your world and you're seeing everything. He's saying if they were wise, they would realize that when one person can drive back a thousand soldiers or two can drive back 10,000, obviously we must be on the wrong side of what God is wanting. He's saying they should get this. But again, you see the issue with affluence and blessing because the affluence and blessing can shield the fact that they're already living in rebellion. This happened for the psalmist named Asaph. If you remember in Psalm 73, Asaph was looking at the prosperity of the wicked and he was like, my feet almost slipped. He's like, I almost stumbled in my faith because I'm watching people in rebellion against God and they're being blessed and I'm having all these issues and it ain't right. And he's like, and then I considered their latter end when I went into the house of the Lord. And then Asaph said, whom am I in heaven but you? And there is none that I desire on earth beside you. See, Sometimes the blessings of God, the, all the stuff can conceal the fact that you're on the wrong side of where God wants you. We have a tendency to think that if God blesses us materially, then we're right where we need to be. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Not from Genesis to Revelation. And he's saying they should have gotten this. Now, but he picks up in verse 31. Because what I love about the Bible is that God is always up to something. God doesn't just enjoy judgment. He wants to do something. That's what it says in verse 31. For there 
rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges, for their vine is of the vine of Sodom and their fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. Verse 34, is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up amongst my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining bond or free. He will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your refuge. Now see that I, even I am he, verse 39, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will render vengeance on my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the herds of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance on his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Now, you realize that this is a song. Could you imagine singing the song? It's definitely some metal going on here, you know? Like, <laughs> this is definitely like some distorted guitars, double bass drums, seven string tuned down guitars. You musicians know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyway, because what's going on here is he's saying, when you run after other gods, you don't even realize that. Their blessings are not blessings. I mean, he goes through all these different examples. He already said about all the blessings of the given. He's saying, but their rock is not like our rock. Their vine is not like our vine. It's the vine of Sodom. Their fields, it's the fields of Gomorrah. Remember in Genesis 19, God judged those with fire and brimstone, those two nations. Their grapes are not beautiful wine. They're grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of cobras. See, there's a parallelism between God's beautiful blessings and now when we forsake God, these same things have a different set of effects that are going on. And he's saying, don't forget that vengeance is mine. Now, a God of vengeance and a God of justice, a lot of people struggle with this idea. I'm sure some of you do as well. Like, I, you know, if God is a God of love and a God of perfection, then how can it be a God of vengeance and violence? And I think the reason we struggle with that is because I think we have a tendency to live in a culture that struggles with paradox. I remember when I was studying psychology on the self-actualization hierarchy, the highest place was the resolution of dichotomies where we have this tendency to think that if God is loving, he can't broker in vengeance. But you have to realize that the reason we struggle with these seeming polarities 
is because we can't understand perfect self-sacrificial love and vengeance that is not completely egotistical and self-centered. See, we only know these terms in fallen human terms and not within the perfections of God. See, what you find is that if God is a perfectly loving God, he has to be a just God. God can't be a loving God if he's not a just God. So what I want to encourage you, and obviously if you want to send in questions, we can talk more about it. But we have to dwell deeply and ask the Spirit for wisdom in how these seeming opposites exist completely in God. And people have a tendency to say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is violent and just, and the God of the New Testament is gracious, but actually God's most violent act was the cross. Where Jesus received all the punishment, not only for the rebellion of the children of Israel, but for all the world, every sin that was ever committed. God's single most violent act was placing the punishment, the just punishment for the sins of the world on Jesus. Now, what's amazing is we live in a day and age today where even within the church, people don't like to talk about this. They want to reason it away. They think they're trying to help God's cause by not talking about the severity of sin and what salvation actually costs Jesus. And they think it's like, well, you know, if God is love, you would never do that. No, no, listen, Jesus is God. He knows exactly what he's doing. We shouldn't be afraid of these things. And don't miss the fact that when Jesus returns at the final judgment, everyone will have to give an account for their lives and judgment will be meted out. Now, I realize that in this day and age, that's a hard teaching, but it is a biblical one. And it's a true teaching, not because I like it, but because Jesus said it. And when Jesus says that, what I always tell people, like, and I was just talking to someone about this today, if you struggle with this, and I think in some ways all of us do, start to just say, Lord, will you help me understand this? How can a God of perfect love broker in violence? And see how he begins to unpack it, because that's how I've learned about this stuff. Because I know it's in the word, I know what it says, but it's like, Lord, help me to understand it. And when you pray that way, God will begin to unpack things for you. You'll begin to look at things differently. And I think because we live in a soundbite culture, because we live in a simplistic culture, because we live in a day and age, you know, we see it at play in our political realm right now. Everything lacks nuance. Everything's just like you run this thing out there and But these things, a lot of these issues, because the world isn't simplistic, it's highly nuanced. But because people only have like, I got to get my two-sentence teaser, I got to give you this whole thing in two sentences. And really the most important things are impossible to give in a tweet. It's not possible. They're deeper than that. And we want to allow as we submerge our hearts and our souls in the word of God, we want God to deepen us, don't we? We want him to help us not be afraid of the tough questions, the hard questions. Because even though God will bring vengeance on his enemies, notice what happens in verse 43 at the end of this song. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Notice that. That God has a plan for the Gentiles, all the nations, to rejoice. Why? Because he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will render vengeance on his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. See, in the midst of all this discussion about judgment, there's that hope. 
that hope that God is going to provide atonement. That word atonement, literally, it's three words in the English put together. At one meant. God's going to take what is separate and bring together. The word in the Hebrew is literally the mercy seat, which was the covering on top of the Ark of the Covenant that was behind the veil in the Holy of Holies that once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest, after already having an animal killed to atone for his sins, would bring a blood offering in to atone for the sins of the nation. And he's saying, look, even though there's judgment and rebellion, God will make atonement for his land and his people. And you know who that atonement is? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And you know, I always think in John's gospel tells us something unique about the tomb of Jesus. It always blows my mind because when they looked into the tomb, there was an angel on either side where Jesus' body lay. And I remember one day I was reading it and I was kind of meditating on the scene. And I was reminded that on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat with the blood side, that lid, there was two cherubim that were facing each other. And I imagine they're looking in. Now, you got to realize that Mary Magdalene and Peter and John, they'd never been in the Holy of Holies. They just knew what this Ark of the Covenant looked like. But you imagine when they looked in, the place where Jesus' body lay would have been blood-soaked at that point because of the beating and the crucifixion that Jesus received. And so there's this slab with these two angels and there's blood. And I just wonder if one of them thought, the mercy seat. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is what this is all about. God's blood sacrifice to atone because death was necessary for the sins committed and Jesus took it for us. Now, look at what goes on here. In verse 44, it says, So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, And spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel. And he said to them, set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. For it is not a futile thing for you because it is your life. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Now, what's really powerful about this is that this is Moses' second to last act, right? He's going to bless the 12 tribes, what we know as chapter 33. And then Joshua is going to assume that position of leadership. But Moses brings Joshua with him. And after Moses finished speaking, he has Joshua there. And I like this because you have this kind of, this co-leadership of the children of Israel. Moses is still the guy. And when I read this, I was reminded of Pastor Bill Ritchie, our founding pastor and I, when we co-taught Easter Sunday, the week before I became the lead pastor and we did it together. And it was kind of a beautiful thing that God had done. He taught the first half of the message. I taught the second half of the message. And I, when I read this about Moses, this is the song of Moses, but he came with Joshua. And he reminds them of what's going on. And I love this because the reminder is, set your hearts on all the words that I testify. You know, you want to talk about reading the Bible, reading the word together? Set your hearts on the word. I said it in our message from Second Peter, but God does not want his word to be merely information. He wants it to provoke transformation. And God's word will transform you if you set your heart on it. 
You can study the Bible with your head. There's all sorts of cool details. You can keep yourself busy with it. But God wants to transform our hearts. So we need to set our hearts on the word and be careful to observe the word. We believe here at Crossroads in an active faith. We believe that when we trust Jesus and we respond to him, we're going to be active in the world. That God has us moving through the world and he wants us to be his hands and feet. There's a lot of people who don't believe in an active faith. They believe that Jesus was active and now I just rest to Jesus. No, to whom much has been given, much is required. Because of so great a salvation, now we are provoked by that love to let Jesus move through our lives into the world. Always make sure that your faith is active. Not you drumming up activity, but simply responding to Jesus and allowing Jesus to work through us. And notice in verse 47, he's like, look, it's not a futile thing for you because it is your life. Wow. I want you to... Take your pen and underline that in your neighbor's Bible. (laughs) Just underline it, just say. Why? Because you know what Satan does? There's only one book in history that there's spiritual warfare against reading, and that's this book. You know why? Because it's your life. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But isn't it so funny how often you're like, I don't feel like reading today. It's futile. You ever say that to yourself? I definitely have. I'm like, man, ah, man, I gotta read. I gotta do something else. No, it's your life. There's life in this book because these are the words that testify of our Lord and Savior. We wouldn't know anything about Jesus if it wasn't for this book. And Jesus is our life. Now, in verse 48, we get Moses' death announced. It says... Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, go up this mountain of the Abraim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die on the mountain which you ascend, and be gathered to your people, verse 50, just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you trespassed against me, among the children of Israel at the waters of Mirabah, Kadesh, and in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel, yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. So we find out just as Aaron died and was buried on Mount Hor, now Moses is going to die on Mount Nebo. And so he says, I want you to go up this mountain and you're going to be able to see the land, but you're not going to be able to go in. And he reminds Moses why Moses wasn't allowed to go in because Moses did not hallow his name before the people at that rebellion at the waters of Mirabah. And that word Mirabah literally means contention. Remember, the children of Israel were complaining. You could imagine Moses leading these people through the wilderness. It could be pretty frustrating. But God, you know, they wanted water. And God said, I want you to speak to the rock. And Moses yelled at him. And he says, you you misrepresented me. Jesus is real. I need to start exercising. How many times have you heard or even said this yourself? 
reality is that physical activity does keep you healthier. Well, today, Pastor Daniel shared that your faith needs to be active too. You learned that this doesn't mean that you do this on your own terms, but that you simply respond to what Jesus is leading you to do. When you exercise your faith in this way, you'll see some amazing results. Hey everybody, this is Pastor Daniel, and I want to be honest with you for a moment. Life is messy, and the hard reality is, if it isn't messy for you now, it will be, and it probably has been in the past. Did you know that you can still thrive in tough times? It's true, but only through the power of Jesus. That's the purpose behind my book, Honestly. I want you to know how to keep living your best life in Jesus, no matter the circumstances. You can find out more about it and get your own copy at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Hey, I wanted to remind you that each day on Facebook, Pastor Daniel shares a simple two-minute message. In this message, Pastor Daniel draws out an important biblical truth that really helps set your day on the right path. So be sure to follow Pastor Daniel Fusco on Facebook and share these two-minute messages with your friends and family. Join us again here on Jesus Is Real Radio when you'll learn that Moses blessed the Israelites before he died. Pastor Daniel will encourage you to follow the example of Moses and bless and be a blessing to others. You'll be reminded that your words have great power to build up and encourage the people in your life. You can ask God to help you explore how you can use that power to love and strengthen those around you. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time. Pastor Daniel continues teaching through this series called Cause and Effect. That's next time on Jesus is Real Radio.